now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abraham. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh called Abraham and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Right, you know what? I'm not sure about that passage. Don't know about you. Do you, think we, do you think we can skip to next week and just go to Genesis 13 instead? Because, well, this passage is, when you read it, it's kind of embarrassing, really. We've got Abram, or Abraham, as he later uh, is known as, and he's kind of one of the heroes, one of the sort of main characters in the Old Testament. And here he is, effectively... Uh, trafficking his, his own wife to save his own skin. I mean, this is, this is the patriarchal society at its worst. This kind of story does not play well. And maybe hearing that today, you're quite uncomfortable uh, with this. And well, okay, there can be reason for us to skip ahead here. But to, to be honest, I'd like to say that in this church, uh, we don't apologize for the Bible. We're not embarrassed by it. But what we do is we try and really understand what it says and what it means and what it means for us. And uh, what I want to say to you today is that as we do that, as we go on that journey together, uh, I think there's going to be a lot that's going to be helpful to us and even encouraging to us uh, about uh, this story. So go with me on it for all the reservations that you might have with it. The first thing to say is, yeah, well, okay, yeah, Abraham is something of a hero uh, in the Bible. He's one of the main characters. But also in saying that, it's important to remember that the Bible is not a sort of collection of moral tales with different characters and say, oh, we should be like this character and be like this character. Now, that's not the way the Bible uh, presents these stories. Actually, the Bible in many ways is actually just telling tr is truthful accounts of real people. Uh, real people like you, you and me who get things wrong, make mistakes, sin against each other and against God. And really, it's the story of broken people in the hands of a gracious and faithful God. And that's what we're going to see today, how God responds to what happens here. 
Because what Abram does is despicable. It really is. And the question is, how does God respond to that? The story of the Bible as a whole, okay, we can call these main characters heroes in a way, and there is good things about you read through the Bible, and Adam and Eve, and and Moses, and and Ruth, and Esther, and King David, and in the New Testament, there's Peter and Paul, and all these different people. Okay, we could call them heroes in a sense, and there's things that are good about them, but they're also presented to us as flawed characters. No, no, there's only one real hero in the Bible. There's only one person that we can look to and say, actually, everything that they say and everything that they do is right and is good, and that is Jesus Christ. But it's actually stories like these that show broken people that show humanity's need for Jesus, who is the one who is good and who's right and who is the saviour. And so it's important when we look at passages like this to understand that they are descriptive rather than prescriptive. They're describing what's happening rather than saying, this is the way that you and I should behave now. Maybe we don't think about the Bible in that way, but you think about that in terms of other things that you might read and you don't come to the same conclusions as you might about the Bible. You read the BBC News website, you don't think, oh, the BBC, it condones murder and theft and all these things. No, just because it's there doesn't mean that it's saying this is great. No, it's reporting what has happened and passages like this do that exact thing. And although that might take a bit of understanding of how the Bible's fitted together and the different types of literature and all those sorts of things, when we look at it through that lens, there's a lot that can help us here. This is actually good news for us. Because maybe you say, well, I've not done what Abram has done. I've not trafficked my spouse. Okay, but have you ever done anything that's hurt the people closest to you? Have you ever been exploited by someone else? Have you been a victim? Have you been a perpetrator? Have you done things that are wrong that you are ashamed of? Well, that's what's in this passage. And what we see is, how how does God respond to people like that? How does God respond to broken people? You see, a passage like this is actually about the way in which the gracious and faithful God of the Bible restores and transforms both abusers and those who are abused, sinners and sufferers. And that's what we're going to see today. And as we do, my hope is that you see the hope in this passage. Well, let's get into it. As Toby mentioned last week, in Genesis 12 marks a sort of new beginning, a reboot, a a, a new season, a new uh, trajectory for humanity because God focuses on Abraham and Sarah and gives them great promises and says to them, you're going to be blessed. I'm picking you out to bless you and you're going to have children because they didn't have children up to this point and through your family line, You're going to be blessed, but also I'm going to bless the whole world. And so there's a great sense of hope and optimism here. And part of that great promise and great uh, calling that God gives to Abraham and Sarai, he also talks about a land, a place that this is going to happen, an inheritance for them. And what we saw last week, as Toby uh, explained, Abram and Sarai moved to this land of Canaan and they see this land. Now it's occupied by other people at that moment, but this is the land that they're going to inherit, that God has for their sort of family line. Well, at the beginning of this passage that we've got to today, there's a challenge. Abram and Sarai, where they're kind of 
being just outside this land, they hit famine. There's a famine around them. And so they decide, okay, let's leave this place and go to Egypt instead. Now, it's kind of a bit morally ambiguous as to whether that was a direct disobedience to what God had said or whether it was just kind of a foolish thing to do. If you know anything about Egypt, you might know that uh, the, the, uh, the River Nile runs through uh, Egypt. And so it kind of makes sense that that would be a good place to go because when you've got a great big river, it's more likely there's good land there to, to grow things in a time of famine. So there's common sense there, but also God had given Abraham and Sarai these promises about this land and they're going in the opposite direction. So at, at best, it's kind of a foolish decision on their part. So that's not great, but when we think about them, we were, we're talking about Abram and Sarai at an early stage of their walk with God. They're kind of immature, it kind of seems, in their faith. They've not learned how to walk with God. God's just appeared to them, spoken to them, and they're kind of working their way through. And if any of us have walked with God for any time, we're going to get to a place in life where we think, okay, God's kind of said some things. I know some things that are true about what God said to me, but then I'm facing a challenge right now and God's kind of silent. And I don't really know what to do here. And what do we do in that situation? What Abram does is like, right, I'll take matters into my own hand. I'll do a common sense solution. Now, we're not quite sure, but what we can see from this passage is Abram doesn't cry out to God. He's not learned yet the first instinct of prayer. And that's a mark of maturity of faith where we face good times or we face challenges. Our first instinct should be, God, what do you want? God, help me here. He's trusting himself rather than trusting God, it seems. And so what happens from that point is we get a sort of spiraling out of control, a worse and worse situation. He kind of makes this foolish decision, doesn't cry out to God in prayer, takes things into his own hands, goes down to Egypt, gets to Egypt think, okay, now I'm, now I'm scared. Now I'm worried because I'm out of my comfort zone here. I'm in a foreign land. Things are going to go badly for me. He's still trusting himself and he makes a horrendous decision. Well, two horrendous decisions. There's there's a lying. He kind of said, no, pretend that you're, I'm just going to call you my sister, which kind of was half true. They were half sister, which is another issue that we're not going (laughs) to unpack today, but go with me on that. But he, he misleads the situation, but also just quite blatantly puts his wife in extreme, uh, extreme danger and does something <clears throat> incredibly sinful. Now, there is no excuse for sin. And I'm not going to spend any time trying to excuse what Abram does here. But although there's no excuse for sin, there is always a reason why sin happens. There is always circumstance to it. And I, With this situation here, I don't think Abraham sort of decided when he was just outside Canaan, that all right, I'm going to get rid of my wife here. What's going on here? Well, firstly, it's it's like a multiplication of things. You've got hard circumstances. You've got a famine. 
You've got a kind of lack of prayer, doesn't cry out to God. And then he makes a foolish decision to go to Egypt. And then he finds himself on the back foot. He's afraid and he fails to trust God in that moment and takes matters into his own hands again and does something even worse and ends up hurting and, and, and yeah, hurting his relationship, putting his wife in extreme danger and do something that he probably never planned to do that is horrendously wrong. There's things that we can, I think, empathise and sympathise here. How often do we find ourselves in a place, you know, whenever have you done something wrong, something that you thought you'd never do, but it's kind of like you weren't trusting God in that moment. There was difficult circumstances. You weren't sure what to do. You were afraid. How often have we done stuff that we shouldn't have done when we felt afraid? Now, this is a real story. It doesn't excuse what happens, but it's a real story And it's a a situation that we find ourselves in. And his failure to trust God led into this horrendous sin. And I'm sure he ended up in a situation, how did I get myself in this mess? How did I do, have you ever felt like that? How have I got things, how have I ended up hurting the people that are closest to me? That's what happens when we lose sight of what God's called us to. We trust ourselves. We're suspicious of God, perhaps. We've, all we see is the difficulty in front of us. We're broken. How did we end up here? And I think I find myself in a position like that. I'm sure you have as well. Let's unpack what he did a little bit here as well. Because as I've said, it's understandable in a way to point at a passage like this and say, well, you know, the Bible, this is, this is the patriarchal society at its, at its worst. When men have the power, they just exploit uh, others, exploit women. And it seems that the Bible has no problem with that. That's an understandable uh, accusation that you could make at a passage like this. Well, let's think about that. Let's approach that. Is that really what's going on? Well, when we understand the context, let's think about, does God, does God condone what Abram does here? Well, what did Abram, what did God say to Abram and Sarai? If you rewind a bit, what did he say? What God actually said to them was, you're going to have children. My calling over your life is that you're going to have children and through your family, you and the world are going to be blessed. That calling, what God said, actually affirms their equality. Because God has so designed the process of children being born, it requires both a husband and a wife. Neither of them could have done that by themselves. God's call affirms their equality. It dignifies both of them. It says, you are both equally important in this. That's what I've said to you. When we realise that and we see what Abraham does here, Actually, what he does is even worse than it first appears because not only is he being unfaithful to his wife in terms of not looking after her, not helping her, not going with where they're supposed to go, but putting her in extreme danger, he's actually directly disobeying what God has said because God has said, you both, your marriage is what's going to be blessed. And Abram's splitting that up. Abram's being faithless to God. Actually, this example is direct disobedience to God. Far from God condoning it. Actually, when we understand that context, this is even, it's even worse. What we see, God not condoning this, saying something completely different, but then we see God rescuing them. There are sinners, there are sufferers, and God rescues them. 
through supernatural intervention. He say, actually saves Sarai from harm, gets them back on track. And that's what we see by the end of this passage, back to their calling that he had for them. And God is the rescuer, not stamping approval on this. No, I need to rescue you from this and the mess that you have got yourself into when you disobey what I have said. And so I want to spend the rest of the time here thinking about God's rescue. Thinking about this big theme of God rescuing his people. Because this story of Abraham and Sarah in Egypt, at first it kind of seems like a sort of bizarre and perhaps irrelevant sidetrack. I mean, why would this story be in this grand sweep of Genesis? mess things up a bit, God has to bail, bail them out. Actually, when we understand the big story of Genesis and the big story of the Bible even, we, there's something that's truly significant here. What am I talking about? Well, God is the great storyteller. And through the Bible, God writes a great narrative, a great story. And what we see here, an example of a sort of storytelling uh, technique, as it were, from God. God uses the real events of real life to, to draw a great narrative and pick up great big themes that he wants us to learn and to understand about who he is and the way he interacts with our world. He uses this storytelling te- uh, technique uh, called foreshadowing. These events in this passage actually foreshadow things that come later on and that it gives it significance. Now, what is this sort of foreshadowing? What am I talking about? Well, let's step out of this great story of the Bible for a moment to think of another great story. In fact, I would say the greatest film of all time, which is The Godfather. Now, as an example of foreshadowing, you'll see where this is going in a minute. If you've ever seen The Godfather, maybe you haven't, but in The Godfather, The first opening scene has this Vito Corleone, the gangster mafia boss, and he's in there in his study. It's the opening scene. He's in his study, surrounded by his henchmen. And what he has is this man come up to him, all nervous and stuff, and sort of kisses his hand and swears allegiance to him as the godfather. Now, a few scenes later, we have Vito's son, Michael. And Michael says... I am never going to be like my father. I'm never going to follow in his footsteps. That's what they're like. They're crooked. They're corrupt. I'm going to play it straight. I'm going to live my own life. And in this great story, what we're seeing is these events are foreshadowing what comes later. Because the closing scene of The Godfather, sorry to spoil it for you if you've not watched it, but it is a 50-year-old film, so that's, that's on you if you've not watched it yet. But in the closing scene, what we have is Michael. Corleone, in his study, surrounded by his henchmen who kiss his hand and swear allegiance to him as the Godfather. What we've seen is the corruption of the son. We see these parallels, the same things happening again and again. And you think, wow, how did that happen? How did he get sucked into something he swore he would never do? And you see the significance of both. Now, if you'd only ever seen the first five minutes of The Godfather, you think, what's that all about? Just a man in his study surrounded by people. If you've only ever seen the last five minutes of The Godfather, you think, okay, there's another man in his study and the same things is happening. But when you see the whole film and you see it together and you see, oh, the corruption, and uh, it's the greatest film ever. Well, my opinion anyway. But you see the significance when you see the two things together. Now, What's this all about? In this part of Genesis, what is happening is foreshadowing what is going to happen in Exodus. 
The book of Genesis, it seems, was written by Moses to the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness before they were getting to the promised land. So the original hearers of Genesis would have heard this story of Abram and Sarai and heard what happens. Well, God's people, they go down to Egypt and they get themselves in a mess of sin and of suffering. And what happens is God intervenes, miraculously sends plagues even onto the Pharaoh and that causes Abram and Sarai to leave Egypt and they get out and they're rescued by God. So what, what would the Israelites have thought when they heard that story for the first time about their ancestor Abram? They would have said, that's our story. That's, our, that's what happened to us. We were in Egypt The great story, the Exodus, we were in Egypt in a mess of sin and suffering. God sent plagues and rescued us out. And that would help them to understand that's what God's like. He's the rescuer. That's what he's doing. And so these stories in the Bible, why are they in there? Because God wants to show us this is what God's like. He's the rescuer. This is Abram and Sarai's story. This is the story of the Exodus. And friends, this is our story as well. Is it not? Do me and you, is that what we do in our life? We make foolish decisions. We think we know best. We take hold of things, right? I don't know how to go, so I'm just going to take control here. We get ourselves into the midst of sin and suffering. We make bad decisions when we are afraid. The good news is that God is the rescuer. God is the redeemer. God is the one that writes a story with our lives and brings us from that place of sin and suffering in our Egypts and brings us back to our calling and our destiny and the promises that he has given to us. Friends, this is our story as well. It's what God is like. It's what God wants us to understand. He is the rescuer. He is the restorer. And for you, he has plans and destiny. And perhaps it feels like you're in the midst of Egypt. You're afraid. You've got things wrong. Maybe you identify with Abram. Maybe you identify with Sarah. Sarai. You're, you're a victim. You've been exploited by others. God is the rescuer of both sinners and of sufferers. And it's important for me to underline that because I want to talk to you about this rescuing, faithful God who writes a great story of faithfulness through our circumstances. But it could be the case that today you're hearing this and you're thinking, well, I'm not seeing God's faithfulness yet. You're telling me God is faithful, God is a rescuer, but I'm not seeing it yet. Well, I I think that's probably what Abraham and Sarai felt like too. They faced famine. Did they think, where's the faithfulness of God? We're facing famine here. Doesn't he understand that? And then they go down to Egypt and they get really afraid in a place of fear. Where's the faithfulness of God? I'm sure Sarai, when she gets taken to Pharaoh's house, Everything's messed up here. We were called to do something completely different. We find ourselves, where's the faith? How would God let something like this happen? Where's the faithfulness of God? But then when they walk out of Egypt, when, when God's rescue of them happens, 
when they walk out of Egypt, when they're actually more blessed than they were before. What a story that is. They're more blessed, more wealthy financially than they were before because God had written that into the story as well. They walk out of Egypt and they look back and say, oh yeah, God was faithful. God was faithful even though we were sinful, even though we were broken, even though we got things wrong, even though we got off track, God was faithful. Friends, we don't always see God's faithfulness in the moment, but he invites us to trust him and trust that he is the great storyteller and he is writing a story with our lives. And if it's a God story, if you've entrusted your life to God and you're seeking to follow him, if you've invited him into your life, if it's that kind of story, it's a story about God's faithfulness. Whatever else happens in your life, if God is in your life, it is a story of God's faithfulness. And we see that right the way through the Bible. God's faithfulness is all over God's stories. And so if you're not quite seeing God's faithfulness yet, well, what does that mean? It means that your story is not over yet. There's another time that's going to come that you're going to look back on now and say, oh, actually, no, God was faithful. God was faithful. Because that's the kind of story that God writes with our lives. And friends, he's inviting us to trust him today. Inviting us to trust in his faithfulness. Trust that even in the darkest situation, even in the place that we feel most fearful, most afraid, even in the place of most shame where we've hurt the people that are closest to us, to actually trust, no, God is faithful. God is good. God has a story that he's writing and these things that I'm facing right now don't have to define me. How can we do that? How can we trust this God of the Bible? Well, we can trust because of the cross, because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Look, understandably, you can point at Abram here and say, well, look, when faithless men have the power, they exploit others. Okay, true. But the Bible talks about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he had all the power. He had all the authority. How does he use it? What does he do with it? Well, the Bible describes how Jesus, his relationship to his people, the church, is like a husband and a wife. And in this passage, we have seen how Abram sacrifices his wife to cover himself. Is that what God's like? No. Jesus sacrifices himself to cover us. That's what the cross is about. That's what the cross is about. And Jesus invites us as sinners, as sufferers, as abusers, as abused to come to him. Because on the cross, he has paid for our sin. He has covered our shame. He has taken the punishment upon himself for our sake so that those things can be covered. And we can know the faithfulness, the faithfulness of God over our lives. And so he invites us to trust him, to trust him today. It's the story of Abraham and Sarai. It's the story of the Bible. And it's our story as well. Faithless people like you and me in the hands of a faithful God. Amen.